Hey, hey, welcome everybody. It's another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. We're at episode number 171 today. On today's episode, we're going to power up a planer and we're going to talk about now what is a sawtill anyway? Uh, we'll also do a couple of other updates about what's going on here at Woodsmith Shop Notes and Popular Woodworking. Quick check in with last episode and a couple of comments and questions there. Uh, first of all is, uh, what is Logan snacking on? <laughs> so I was snacking on the, the lunch. Well, like my, so I fast during the day. So usually it's like three o'clock, which I think is when we were filming that last one is when I like have a snack and then I eat dinner and that's all I eat during the day. It is the fasting snack of champions, a mm-hmm. sugar-free Red Bull and pistachios. There we go. Like, pre-shelled pistachios i personally like the ones in the shell because i like the interactive eating but my wife has she doesn't have time for that crap so she buys the like 85 dollars bag from from costco that's what i was snacking on i feel like in the next episode you're just gonna be sitting there with a walnut cracker and just be like <laughs> cracking a walnut and it's, it's, so it's i did like that last I did that last night. I cracked enough for a hun- or for a cup to make a walnut cake last night. Okay. Don't don't ask me how the walnut cake turned out because I forgot the uh, baking powder, which doesn't make it rise. So it was like more like a like walnut Brownies. bread kind of. Yeah, I'm mean, kind of. Yeah, it was like a, it was like a banana bread. Mm-hmm. The cup of walnuts took me an hour to crack. <laughs> okay. So you're burning the calories that yes. you're eating. Yes. So it's yeah. like a yes. net zero snack. Yep. Yeah. Yep, so. it was a it was a uh yeah, it was a labor of love. Yeah. Okay. And just another proof that like our phones and electronics are listening to us. I have not searched anything to do with walnuts <laughs> and my YouTube and TikTok and everything is just full of walnut gathering <laughs> solutions and husking solutions and <laughs> cracking solutions and everything. So it's it's listening. That's a delight. All right. Uh, Puppy Doc writes, sorry to hear about your injury, Phil. My wife is convinced I will at some point lose an appendage or digit due to my woodworking activities. Most of my woodworking is late at night after she goes to bed. I have injured myself once or twice. So far, none of my injuries have required a trip to the ER yet. Since I am a veterinarian, I may have a bit of an advantage at avoiding the ER. The most severe right. injury happened almost a year ago while working at the drill press with a two-inch Forstner bit hollowing out a shallow bowl form. Don't ask. I know I did something not so smart. The hardest part was waking up my wife for assistance, removing the third of thumbnail that was still partially attached to the hamburger tip of my thumb. When I woke her, I did have to caution her that she was not waking up to a bloody stump as she predicts. Yet, like a good husband, I take it as my duty to prove her wrong. I just wish I didn't have to try so hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's awesome. There you go. I feel like as a lifelong woodworker, like it's just a matter of time. Like <laughs> no matter how careful you are, it's just something will happen eventually. Like, as in, like, you'll end up in the ER? No, just there'll be some sort of injury. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Like, I slice myself regularly. Right. But usually it's like I'm digging around in a tool cabinet looking for something and I I find a travisher that doesn't have a, you know, sleeve on it or something. Right. Yeah. Right. So just stay vigilant out there, everyone. 
keep your head on a swivel. The tools are coming for you. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Draper says, while styrofoam sheets do not absorb moisture from the air, it can absorb water it comes in direct contact with. And we were okay. talking about your yeah. uh, under slab I... insulation on your shop. Yep. And I think, and I could be wrong, I think that is with, so there is extruded and expanded polystyrene. So you got the, the white beady yeah. foam mm -hmm. and then yep. you got the extruded pink stuff i don't think the pink stuff does the white stuff definitely yeah. does it gets waterlogged yeah. i don't yeah. think the pink stuff does but i have been wrong yeah i think it's closed cell and open cell foam bingo that's right if you use closed cell foam it shouldn't yeah but i don't know i'm not a foam expert yeah he also follows up with the osage orange tree at maturity can grow 35 to 50 feet tall with a trunk diameter up to two feet not I in Iowa, like, they don't. <laughs> I would like to see these. I I bet you I bet you, you get further down south, they probably do because there's a longer growing season. In Could Iowa, be. we get yeah. yeah, we get like a foot. You know, one of the questions that I have about Osage Orange, then, if this guy's reporting that they get that big, is is Osage Orange a forest tree then that it's competing and then gets bigger? If it's going to get a trunk diameter of two feet and That's then big, that tall. Yeah. Now, okay. You know, because around back, here, yeah. Osage Orange is like, we always call it like a fence row tree. Yeah. I, I Let me backtrack a little bit. The, what comes out of the ground generally in Iowa is only about a foot, maybe a little bit bigger. They do generally fork, at least here in Iowa, you know, like three or four foot off the ground. So I've seen them, you know, they'll they'll go up and then out. Yeah. So they'll get that big crotch on them, that big orange crotch. Um, and so I can see that. Now, I have, I don't generally see them in the timber. I usually I see them around the edges yeah. of the timber or like mainly fence rows. Um, sometimes in like, you know, creek beds that run through the middle of fields and stuff. Not to say that that's, you know, native how they would have grown. Um, I have actually. My biggest bow buck that I've shot, I drew on him as he crossed behind an Osage orange tree that was in the middle of the timber. That's the only one I've ever seen. But it was on the edge of a field, and I know when my grandparents farmed that, that that field went further. So I'm guessing that that hedge tree was probably on the edge of the field at one point. So Yeah. I don't know. Just I'm just imagining what a mess a 75-foot-tall hedge apple tree would make. Yeah, and that, that's fair also. So it's kind of interesting. Anyway, we'll pick up a couple other comments on here. One is uh, a little bit of a bite here. Logan, sorry my Bills beat up your Dolphins. Can't wait for the rematch. <laughs> yeah, especially now that the Bills are missing two of their defensive stars. Watch out. Yeah. The Miami track and field team's coming for you. <laughs> All right, before we go any farther, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for today's episode. Uh, it's Epilogue Laser. You can quickly and easily customize your woodworking projects for added beauty and value. Learn more at epiloguelaser.com. Then uh, two more from Stephen Draper for comments from the last one. Uh, we were talking about the straight gouge mm -hmm. that 
I was working on. And he asked, what is the process to retemper steel? What type of steel? Well, like that chisel. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the, the, the thing is that every different steel has a different tempering process and tempering uh, or hardening. I'm guessing he doesn't want tempering. He wants hardening because they're two different things. Hardening, right. hardening is making the steel hard so it will hold an edge. Tempering is reducing that hardening so it's not brittle. So it's refining it's refining the grain structure of the um, material. Uh, yeah. So it's not brittle. Um, so for that one in particular, and generally like O1 tool steel, which is uh, O as in the letter, not the number. It's not zero one. It's O1, and O1 stands for oil quenching tool steel. Um, so for something like that, which you know, most crucible or cast steel will be some form of O1 tool steel. Um, I'm not a metallurgist, so if there is one <laughs> listening, you can t crucify me for all you want. You basically, you heat it to a very particular temperature. I don't know exactly what the temperature is because I don't know how to measure that. I don't have a way to measure that. But O1 tool steel's hardening temperature is very, very close to the non-magnetic temperature of it. So you heat it up until a magnet does not stick to it. Yeah. Once it's at that temperature, you quench it in oil if it's O1. Um, so there are water hardening steels where they are quenched in water instead of oil. Um, it's a much faster quench. Um, plus, you don't get all the sweet, smoky steam. Um, and then you check it with the file. Um, if the file skates across it, great. It's hard. Um if a file bites into it, you did something wrong. Um, and there are, I mean, there are different levels of hardness you will get. So like you do the same steel a couple of times, different temperatures, it will get a different hardness. Um, as long as a file skates, you know, I've always called it good. You know, O1 tool steel sharpens so nicely. Um, it's a joy to sharpen and gets razor sharp. So if I have to sharpen a little bit more, so be it. Yeah. So that's, broad general overview yeah. and then after that is when you would do the heat treating process where you heat Correct. it up to you're only heating it up a couple of hundred degrees yes where it's not glowing or anything yes and then you for, just yeah Usually for a longer term yeah yeah 400 to 450 for a couple hours um, yeah. and then you let it air cool so Air like cool, you yeah. you shut you know like when I've done like plain blade irons and stuff you know you do the whole heating quenching throw them in the oven at four fifty for four or five hours and then you just shut the oven off and let the everything naturally cool down yeah so so that's the the broad overall process by somebody that doesn't know much about it <laughs> <laughs> you just got Logan splained tempering yep. and hardening yep. <laughs> and then the final one is also from Stephen uh, Logan. You were talking about your workshop and projects that you wanted to make for it. One of them you said was a saw till. Yes, and that you were going to do that as a project then for Popular Woodworking next issue. Yep. So, can you explain what the heck is a saw till? A saw till is a saw rack, basically. I don't right. know where the term till came from. Phil may. Um, I have no idea. 
Um, it's basically a rack that holds all your saws vertically. Um, think of a bookshelf for saws is basically what it is. Um, yeah. Which kind of becomes problematic when you start looking at the variety of lengths, handle styles, spines on saws. Like, you know, you got back saws, you got panel saws, you got gent saws, you got all these different types of saws. It's hard to hold them all. You know, if you had just panel saws, great. You need, you know, you need a block with some slits in it to hold the blade, and then you need a dowel for the handle to sit on. Right. But once you start like talking about, you know, gent saws or back saws or all, you know, short stubby saws, you know, whatever they are, um, they become a little, little different. Um, I actually have the one that I think Phil, you put the plan up last week. Uh, John did. So we'll John put did. it up as a free plan for this yep. issue or for yep. this episode yep. uh, for a saw till that was in Woodsmith magazine. Yep. And that's the one I currently have. Um, I actually have that one that was photographed for the magazine um, in my shop downstairs. And it works pretty well. Um, but I have a couple of panel saws that are too long for it. So they're very awkward sitting in there. And that one was custom designed for you know whatever saws we had in the photo studio at the time. So yeah. they don't really, my saws don't really fit in there real well. Um, and now I have way too many saws for that one. You know, I think that one maybe holds eight saws, maybe nine. Um, and I have way more than that. So, yeah. Maybe you need to get rid of saws. No. Shut your <laughs> filthy mouth. <laughs> so I did I remember, give away a bunch of saws. So. I remember there was a... Interest in certain types of tools kind of ebbs and flows, especially in the internets with woodworking. And this was a handful of years ago when interest in saws was peaking again. And um, I don't remember where I saw it was a discussion whether a saw till was actually a traditional way of storing and organizing your hand saws, or if it, the idea of a saw till came from uh, commercial displays of saws in hardware stores and, and that kind of thing, general stores, that kind of thing. So you would have a, you know, Distin would have their full line of tools on display at the local Ace or whatever, and they would have them in a saw till. But that wasn't necessarily how a craftsperson would do that in a. I don't I remember think, where yeah. that debate landed. But I think that's it is fair. kind of an interesting, interesting yeah. kind of side note on it. I, I did see um, probably last week, maybe two weeks ago. Um, on one of the handsaw collecting groups that I'm on on Facebook, somebody had a Simmons saw display from, um, you know, a hardware store somewhere. And it was like, a think of like you walk into Walmart, you see the gun carousel back in the sporting section. It was like yeah. that, but for saws. So all the saws were like on this turning carousel, which was, it was pretty cool. It was, I think all they right. said that one was from the forties, which was kind of neat. So. But, That'd be kind of yeah, cool. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it doesn't make it less functional or usable. No, it's just kind no, of an interesting way to think about well, you know, where we, where the inspiration comes from for certain things. And if you think about, so if you think about like a traditional craftsman that would have been making their living using saws, they probably had three saws, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they had 
two panel saws and maybe a dovetail saw. And that was probably it. Like tenon saws, maybe some some trades had them. You know, well, it probably depended on what some. they were doing. It was maybe yeah. Because I kind of wonder, because there was a fascination with dovetail saws for the longest time, mm-hmm. and dovetail saws, the small ones, are ideal if you're doing dovetails in drawers. Yeah, but if you're doing carcass dovetails, then a carcass saw is probably a little better of a saw for doing dovetails in thicker stock. Yeah. So I mean, but like, but really, like, is there any craftsman from? you know, the mid 1800s that would have had 30 saws. I doubt it. Right. Uh, so if you're a craftsman from the 1800s listening to this podcast, yes. just let us know. Right. Yes. We'd like, we'd like uh, that information. But I mean, you know what I mean? So it's like, I could see, I could see a saw till probably not being a traditional type of storage. Like I'm guessing saws were probably hung on a peg in a shop. Yeah. So. Or in a toolbox, or yeah, because yeah, like you said, something. they didn't have that many. Probably had that many saws. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know what were carpenters like back then. Were they more specialized, or probably? I well, you know, I guess I don't know. Where like, it's like I, it's a hobby now, so it's like yeah, I do all kinds of different, you know, yeah. woodworking. So I got lots of different kinds of saws. Whereas, you know, you had, you know, people that made cabinets or people that did construction or the you know yeah so yep yeah yeah kind of cool speaking of speaking of saws so uh my guy jared that's over at blue spruce making saws heard our discussion about benches a couple of weeks ago and he sent me a big long email about the bench he just built because he moved from i think the carolinas up to ohio to work with blue spruce building them saws and he has a bench that he installed in emmert pattern maker rice on so okay. he sent me a bunch of photos of it and i'm like this is awesome so he kind of got me some insider information on somebody that's already done it so i'm like all right cool i learned learn from what he did and it lo- his looks pretty good it looks really good he has he actually has cast iron legs on his bench oh. um i don't he, i think he told me where he thought they were from um, but i'll have to go back and look I mean, Lee Valley sold a set of cast iron. No, these are these are uh, vintage ones. I vintage think. ones. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm pulling up his email to see what he said. Google says that the bench legs are probably from an early 1900s press, likely an Arbor press. Okay. So, they're pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I remember we had a bench in the shop that had a pattern makers vice on it i think it was the lee valley one they Mm -hmm. were making for a while and i don't know that it got used all that often in the flippy turny rotating sort of sense yeah well and i guess we've had this discussion before it's like if you're gonna use a a lot of the times a pattern makers vice like this becomes a glorified face vice. Sure. It just is what it is. And that's fine if you have it. Like, I mean, yeah. that's fine. But the ability... To me, it's it's really cool to have the ability to flip it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially since I'm not doing a leg vice on my bench. 
Um, you know, so um, being able to, to flip it to hold stock in a different angle. Um, I, I actually really noticed that when we were working on the Democratic chair seat, it's like, boy, if, if you had a way to hold this at this angle, that would make this a whole lot easier. So being able to <laughs> flip stuff would be really nice. So And now you will. Yes. Well, yes. In several or months from now. <laughs> when you have this bench done, now yes. you will. Yes. So. Speaking of workbench, I was doing some, I was carving a sign on my workbench at home, which I had looked up is that's uh, just over two years old now since okay. I made that. Out of the diaper stage? Well, yep. maybe. <laughs> uh, and it was a delight because carving this white pine sign with hand tools makes all kinds of big chips of wood. And it was nice mm -hmm. knowing that they were all going to stay on the floor in a location where I could easily clean them up. What, the, the other thing that I noticed... Yeah. The other thing that I noticed is because I'm working on another sign here in the shop and the bench here is maple, stout, thick, blah, blah, blah. And I have my bench at home that's white fur for the top mm -hmm. and Douglas fur for the base, essentially. Is how much more deadening mallet blows on my bench were really almost to the point that they felt more effective and i don't know if it's just the way the bench is built or if because i have a soft wood top that unlike maple i'm not getting like a bounce back See, that's just that's just totally made up that I have yeah. absolutely no basis in that. So I fully you know where, admit my ignorance. You know where I would go with that? Okay. I would I would look at the floor. I wondered if because you're on concrete at home. Yeah, but I'm up on like the dimpled plastic plus three quarter that's, inch. Yeah, that's fair. Um, plywood or OSB tongue and groove OSB. Yeah, I, I, I am skeptical of everything on our studio floor <laughs> it's pretty squishy it's very <laughs> squishy yeah so i don't know i mean it, it very well could be that the bench is absorbing a lot more of it yeah um but i i, I it was just kind of an interesting yeah. because i had been working on the one sign here and then the same yeah. day or the next day and then noticing a very different feedback from mallet and gouge work tools were exactly the same yeah because i just take them back and forth with me special shout out to epilogue laser and their cool set of tools that allow you to customize and make unique woodworking projects you can check out all that they have at epiloguelaser.com that's that's one thing i noticed um when i got steven's drawings for this shaker style bench the other day um, I believe he he used material on its face for the top, so I think he used oh. two inch thick stock for the for the bench top, right. and then Flats on. he yep, and then he built out the aprons okay. on the uh, dog hole side, uh, operator side, um, which is I think I'm gonna go I'm gonna go thick top the whole way, I like them thick, so. 
Um, and his his design is actually a traditional style bench with you know legs, so it has three or four inches gap between the lower rails and the floor, so right. shavings to get under there. But he added molding around it, so oh. um, kind of kind of an interesting style. Yeah, cool. It'll be fun to see yours start taking shape there. Yeah. You know, one of the things you're going to need in getting a bench built, especially if you're starting with rough material, is uh-huh. a solid planer. I know. I was telling John before you got on that I'm just sitting in here running stock through the planer. My planer is running, not the jointer. Okay. I want to be very clear. I've had a lot of people ask about the big, huge 24 inch jointer. That thing is not running yet. I'm still waiting on a head. Um, there's a lot of things that need to happen after the head gets here, but the head is kind of the, the um, pivot point of the whole thing. The planer is running. I got my VFD hooked up. Um, it's pretty sweet. Um, I, I did the wiring yesterday. So I, I think we talked about the VFD, how it basically converts single phase to three phase. Yeah. Um, I, I wired that East wall outlets yesterday. Um, or the day before, and then I get the VFD hooked up. So what I decided to do was mount the VFD to the wall, run an outlet underneath, and I'll, I'll put a picture on the show notes page. Uh, so there is, the VFD has a, a cord that plugs into the 220 on the wall. There is a three-phase outlet coming out of the VFD that's mounted to the wall. So then the, the, the planer, I ran a whip out of the motor to the outlet, Okay. So instead of having the power buttons on the planner, they're still there. They just don't go anywhere. Um, now to turn that planner on, you just walk over to the VFD and press the run button and it turns on. Press the stop okay. button, it turns off. Um, now the VFD my, for the non-technical people is essentially like a phone modem for your computer. Yes, basically. That's exactly okay. what it is. Yes, yes, for the non-technical people. Uh, what I... so. I I think I said this last time we're talking about the VFD. There's a th- I mean there's like oh, 300 different parameters you can set in this thing. So it's basically a little computer. And you can make the VFD do weird stuff. Um so ba- so what I did is I took I took a photo of it. I bought this VFD on Amazon. I think we put a link on the last time we were talking about this to the Amazon. Yeah. Um I sent a I sent a picture of my motor plate to the company that makes this VFD or that sells it. They sent within 15 minutes they sent me back. Here's all the parameters you need to set. Okay, cool. I was a little concerned because everything on the um, control panel is all in Mandarin. I mean, it's all in wingdings. You know, like I can't read it. I mean, there's 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 apologies there's, to the people who speak <laughs> and write. Right. We love their oranges. We love their oranges. <laughs> No, so. I mean, I mean, it's it's all in it's all in characters, right? I mean, there there are abbreviations like PRG for program or ETR for enter, like stuff like that. You could definitely tell reading the the manual, which I thought I had sitting here, that it is it is not a native English because I wrote the manual. So I was a little concerned about the the programming of it because I've done some PLC programming and stuff at previous careers and that you can get really into the weeds and they can be a little like 
you know, hold the program and the enter button and then press the up arrow to save the program. Like they, there could be weird stuff like that. This yeah. one was so simple to program. Okay. It took me three minutes to hit all the parameters that they set, they sent. And then the first time I turned it on, I'm not going to lie. I put my squints on and kind of stood back and hit the run <laughs> button to see what happened. And the motor, <laughs> one of the parameters I set was the startup and slowdown times, because you can basically have the VFD act like a soft start. So instead of immediately jerking the motor on, it, it takes, you know, whatever, however long you tell it, you know, take 10 seconds to speed up to take 10 seconds to slow down. It took like two minutes to speed up and two minutes to slow down. It was, I, and I, when I was going through the parameters, I remember setting the 10 second speed up and slow down time. So I'm like, I don't know what I actually set. So I set some parameter for 10 seconds. I don't know what it was. Right. I don't think it affects this motor. Um, but after that first run where I'm like, okay, that took four minutes of speeding up and slowing down. Uh, I <laughs> went back in changed them and now it starts up and slows down right away like 10 seconds i think i actually have it set for a six second startup and six second speed slow down um and then i also discovered that there's a potentiometer on it so that's another thing that a vfd can do is it can control speed that's how that's actually how lathes work so there's a vfd in all lathes that are variable speed okay. that the vfd is converting to three-phase power but that's also controlling the speed of the lathe um there's a knob on there. I assumed one of the parameters that that Molum, the company that made made this VFD, had me set was to just basically shut that via that potentiometer off. It was not. Uh, so I'm, I turned it on this morning after we um, uh, we first talked this morning. I turned it on and I'm like, I wonder if this potentiometer works. And it was turned to the slowest speed. And I went wing, and it just the whole thing just revved up. So it was like, oh hey, there's the throttle. So cranked <laughs> it up all the way. <laughs> Uh, but it's awesome. The thing is like, it's amazingly for being a, it's an 18 inch planer. So it's, it's a bigger planer than most people have, but it's not, it's not a 36 inch planer. It's, it's a big planer. Yeah. It's surprisingly quiet. Like, okay. I could turn it on and I could sit here and probably podcast. You'd hear it, but it wouldn't be like, you're not yelling over top of it, which is really nice. Um, I will have to mess with a couple of the, feed rollers i think there's um there's some adjustments um there's actually a lever that you can adjust the feed roller pressure okay um like on the fly so it's like oh if it's not grabbing you can turn the pressure up um i don't know if the feed rollers are a little gunked up um they don't look like it um but they they may have been worn down enough that i need to replace the feed roller there's like little segmented teeth on them oh I yeah do a, i just might need to get a new set of those and, and drop them in there. Um, I did just wax the bed of it before we started podcasting. So that should help for the feeding as well. Um, Cause it was a little bit of trying to feed it through kind of was, was a little, it wasn't rough. It just, once it grabbed, it grabbed, it just took a minute for it to grab. So yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I'm so, I'm, I'm so pumped about this. I made I literally last night made my wife come out here and watch me turn it on. <laughs> She, she loves like, it. Oh, she's like, you're so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but I am so excited. And I have realized that the combination of a jointer and a planer in one kind of footprint is great in theory. 
until you have a 36 inch bandsaw sitting next to them. And then it's like, oh, they don't nest together as nicely as I was hoping. So we're going to have to see what happens when the big, because I have the smaller eight inch jointer in here right now. We're going to have to see what happens when the 24 inch one comes in because those two machines combine take up quite a bit of footprint. So, yeah. But yeah, those two are like the devastator of shop space. Shop tools joined together. Yeah. It's yeah. It's yeah. big. Um I mean I'm I am hoping that um because the the jointer that I have right now is a it's an eight inch delta. It's a DJ twenty. Um like it's a it's a good size jointer, um, but it just doesn't nest very well. It's it's an awkward size where it doesn't sit over top of the motor for the planer because the motor sits off one side of the the planer, so it's like it doesn't sit over top of the motor, but the fence extends too far back to really nest nicely, and then it has a sheet metal base on it that doesn't nest real nice. So I'm wondering if I get the bigger planer in the, or the bigger jointer in here, if it actually will nest a little bit nicer. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. This is it's a shop journey. Let's be honest. <laughs> let's be honest. I don't have any hard. I don't have any hardline dust collection in here yet, so nothing's permanent. And I think it's funny that that's what makes it permanent. Is <laughs> well, I got a pallet jack. I can move it around. Yeah, I can. Uh, I I did. I was gonna say I did make sure as I'm positioning stuff. The only thing that is never moving is that big bandsaw. That thing okay. is staying where it's at because I did not put runners underneath it. Sure, I put runners under the planer, thinking, okay, if I want, I can wheel the planer out of the way, like so I can get the pallet jack underneath it. Right. Lift it up. So, yeah. yeah. Well, because if you were to put runners underneath the bandsaw, you'd have to build like a pulpit That's right. to operate the bandsaw. Yeah. You'd... The the table would be where this red line is on my shirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> you'd be like using daddy's bandsaw. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I will, I will say, seeing how easy that VFD was to get to run. Now I'm not, I don't want to speak to the quality of the VFD because it was a very cheap VFD. I mean, it was 250 bucks, right? Um, a good American made like Alan Bradley or something is almost a thousand. So like, I'm not, I, I can't speak to the quality and the longevity of it, but the ease of use was phenomenal. It makes me so uh, last night I'm shopping for bandsaw tires for a 36 inch bandsaw. I'm shopping for 18 and a half foot blades. Like, I'm ready to get this bandsaw running now. Because that's the, you'll need one for that and the jointer, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. I will. So, yeah. The, and I think, I think I kind of like this style where it's like, oh, just throw the VFD on the wall and an outlet underneath and plug the machine into the outlet. Because then it's not tied to the VFD. So I could theoretically sell that planer. I still have the VFD sitting there, so I just wheel another three-phase planer in. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. So um, I, I did talk to my – my dad's an electrical engineer or a mechanic, uh, industrial electrician by trade. So he deals with these old <laughs> – I called him last night. I'm like, hey, uh, so I got this VFD running. I didn't say this. I got this VFD running, but the planer's running backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I didn't think that was possible because with, with three-phase – 
you have three legs coming in. You have three hot leads and a, and a ground wire, okay? Um, with 220 single phase, you have two hot leads and a ground wire. Sometimes you have a neutral in there if there's something 110 on the machine. Right. With 110 or 120, you have a hot lead and a neutral and then a ground. So you, like, you have all these different combinations of wires. Long story short, three phase has three hot leads and a ground. It doesn't really matter where they go. However, when you swap out those one of those leads, it will run in reverse. It doesn't no. hurt anything. The motor just runs in reverse. Right. So he's like, just open up the motor. He's like, I, I call him. He's like, hey, this thing's running in reverse. I just need to swap one of the leads, right? He's like, yep. He's like, you basically have a 50-50 shot on whether you wire it right or not the first time. He's like, just swap a lead. It doesn't matter which one you swap. Just swap one. Just swap two of them. So I swapped two of them, and all of a sudden she's running in the right direction. So there you go. It was kind of fun. So, yeah. But I'm looking at this big bandsaw. I was actually looking at it a little bit earlier. I don't know if these wheels are have a crown to them or not. So Possible like, they don't. Yeah, I... I was watching, so Keith Rucker um, is a gentleman that runs a website called vintagemachinery.org. He also has a YouTube channel. Guy's phenomenal. Like, the guy is... Darius's cousin. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, Darius Rucker and Keith Rucker. Um, They... Fud Rucker. Don't forget Fud. Yeah. I forgot about Fud. Um... So he has, he's actually restored several of these old Crescent bandsaws. He's actually working on a 42 inch for Jimmy Duresta. Okay. Um, he said he likes the, um, I've, I've actually emailed him back and forth with the, the planer and he, he, I think he might do a little bit of machining on my bearing blocks for this, um, for the plane or for the jointer. Um, but he said he likes the Crescents because they come with pre-crowned, uh, wheels on them. So you basically, with a bandsaw, you have two options for tires. You have urethane or you have rubber. Okay, urethane's more common now. They don't need glued on. Um, they stretch on. They don't sag, or they do sag as they're spinning, but they stretch right back to shape. Rubber, you have to glue on with either condex cement or epoxy. Um, when they make urethane tires, they can pre-crown them. Pre-crown right. them. So the tire itself has a crown to it, so you don't have to do anything. With rubber tires, you put them on, you stretch them on, then you have to shove a dowel in between the tire and the and the wheel and kind of roll it around as you're applying glue and epoxy around the entire tire, which, I mean, it's a pain in the butt, but it is what it is. But then you have to come back and crown the tires. So you right. have to manually, like, sand a taper on both sides of the tire. That sounds like a pain in the butt. <laughs> I don't want to do that. However, if this has a crown in it already, then I don't have to sand it. The rubber tires for 36-inch bandsaw, I can get a pair of rubber tires for 60 bucks. The urethane ones are like 300 So mm. I don't really want to spend the 300 if I can help it. Yeah, the, the urethane ones are usually that so much better, though. Like, they last I know they longer, are. and they, I know. Don't, they groove don't groove as easily. I know, and... I know. But then I also was looking at bandsaw blades, and bandsaw blades are expensive. Like, for that big a saw. Yeah. Um, like, I do want to ask you guys that, though. Is it... 
is there any benefit in your minds to a wider bandsaw blade for resawing? So I can I can put a two inch wide bandsaw blade on this saw. So this I'm thinking this is going to be my re my resawing saw, right? Like that's what I'm yeah. going to use the saw for, right? Is there a benefit to getting a two inch wide blade versus a one inch wide blade? Uh, I've never had any problems with a one inch blade where it's like, well, you know what? I wish I had a wider blade. So it's yeah, like, but never use a two inch blade. So yeah what's the one that we have on the big laguna in the shop now it's a three-quarter inch blade i think is that all it is one inch it might be a one inch but i think it's three quarters it's not any wider than one right yeah no i'm thinking it's probably one feels um but i I wouldn't get a two inch i wouldn't do a two inch one honestly yeah i mean i don't See, my, from from a sawmilling standpoint, the wider blade you go, the longer the blade lasts and the straighter it cuts. You could put more pressure against it, okay? Because right. there's more spine material, right? Uh, there's, there's not that much cost difference in them. Like, getting a one-inch versus getting a two-inch is not much more expensive. It's like 30 bucks more. Is it going to look sweeter? Oh, yeah, it'll look sweeter with a two-inch blade. <laughs> yeah. But I did – so the um, – it's saved on my computer downstairs. Um, there's a company that makes two-inch wide – actually, I can get I can get a Laguna Risa King that's two-inch wide um, variable space tooth that's carbide-tipped. And they, they say uh, you can resharpen them four times. So – to me, that's not that bad because it's, it's like if you buy a $300 blade that's that long and I can have it resharpened four times, like that's pretty good. Right. And the resharpening is like 30 bucks. Yeah. So that's really not that bad when you when you think about it, um, especially seeing how the, the Resaw King we have for our Laguna in the shop there that you were just talking about, Phil, that was $200. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. So it's like. Really? Yeah, the extra length. It's not that much more. Um, but I just kind of want to... <laughs> I don't know. I just... It's one of those things like, do you make this a straight line saw only? Because you're not cutting any form of radius with a two-inch blade. Right. Like, maybe like a 12-foot radius. <laughs> um, but, I don't know. It's also very odd to me that the big band saw is a right-hand fence... Instead of a left-hand fence. Right. So the, the fence is on the right-hand side of the saw instead of the left-hand side. Which, from a resawing standpoint, makes perfect sense to me. Because it's like if I'm going to resaw, I mean, I resawed all this alder, right? Yeah. It would be so much easier to hold the fence, hold the, the material up against the fence with my right, left hand and push with my right hand. You can't do that with a standard bandsaw fence. So, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I mean, so you then just push with your left hand and hold it up with your right yes, hand. Right? Yes, yes, yes. But like, when you're resawing this much, it's much easier to do it with your right hand. Why? In my opinion. My right hand's way stronger than my left. 
Well, now it's gonna it's gonna get all out of proportion. It's gonna get huge. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just little tiny atrophied left arm. <laughs> it's like a lobster. With, right. You know, big pincher, little pincher. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to start moving the table saw rip fence to the other side now. That's right. Guys yeah. Yes. Don't use skip the table saw. I mean, use the table saw left-handed. Wouldn't that make more, like, to me, that makes sense, yeah. doesn't it? No? Yeah. No? I'm left-handed, I, dude. The yeah, I know you are. Saw as a, as a is my tool. Right-hander. I'm going to yeah. agree with Logan that, yeah. Thank you. It, it would be easier. I don't, I mean, if you're doing a lot of resawing, if you're just doing yes. a little bit, yes. it like, doesn't matter. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Sorry. Now yeah. that the whiny um, portion of the episode no, is. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah, <laughs> I, I understand that Phil does not have many tools that are set up for him, and the bandsaw is one that right. we cannot take away. It's like I got one thing. Right. But yeah. back when this bandsaw was made, you beat the left hand out of your kids. You make them right handed. Yeah. 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 So. None of that Satan hand here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, going back to the football thing for a second. The Miami Dolphin quarterback, he throws left-handed, right? He's right-handed. He does everything right-handed except throw a football. His okay. dad made him throw left-handed when he was younger. Was he a baseball player, too? I I think he was. Because that would be a thing. Like, if you're going to be a yeah. left-handed pitcher, that's where the money's made. Yeah. Throw left-handed. Yeah. Maybe he bats left too, like that. Maybe switch hitter. Yeah. But yeah. All right, that's fair. Yeah. Do you guys do you guys think that dust collection on a bandsaw is futile? Um. Yes and no. <laughs> that doesn't answer my question. I that doesn't like, help me. <laughs> okay. I feel like dust collection on a bandsaw is helpful, but it's a, a kind of a fool's errand in mm -hmm. the sense that there's always going to be dust falling on the table. I've never seen a good, I've never seen a bandsaw that has a real solid level of dust mm -hmm. collection. Like yeah, you can get yeah. a nice cabinet saw, table saw that has decent dust collection on it. Yep. Yep. Where it's not spraying in your face. Yep. And your cut line stays pretty clear. Like that Powermatic that we have in the shop on the set right now, I feel when everything, when it's hooked up right, you know, and the shroud hose goes right to the, yep. like it does a good job. And even yeah. the saw stop ones we have in the shop, they do a decent job. Yeah. With a bandsaw, it feels like there's always something that's yeah, does, getting do you, through. Do you feel like the dust collection on the bandsaw kind of keeps the inside of the bandsaw from filling up, but everything that's on the outside yes. is just going to be there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that statement, knowing how little we actually use the dust collection on the TV set bandsaw. Yeah, and how every time we go to change the blades, like hold on, go get the snow shovel. You got to scoop it out. <laughs> and I, the reason I asked this is because I was I was kind of trying to earlier 
this morning, I was looking at the bandsaw tires, trying to figure out if they're actually crowned or not, which means I'm going to have to cut the rubber off to, to put a straight edge on them. See if they're I mean, you're going to have to anyway, though. I mean, that's, yeah, I kind of wanted to film it because I think it would be an interesting video doing okay. new tires on it. Um, yeah. So I kind of was saving it. But anyways, uh, there's no dust. I mean, there's no dust collection on this saw. Yeah. There's there's none. Um, there It is kind of cool. I'll take a picture for the show notes page. There's a pocket underneath the blade guards. So like go under the table, you got the blade, uh, the blade guides, which are on this, on the, the crescent saws are like cool blocks for the front. And then there's a giant three and a half, four inch bearing for the back for the thrust. Um, but it's not on edge. It's on the face. So the, it spins this way um, instead of following the blade. But right below that, there's a, piece of hardwood that has been slit at and it sits at an angle almost like it is a dust collection chute right and there's actually a little opening on the side of the the saw case but there's no dust collection port oh so the the lagunas have that too where you have like they do that slides in there yes they do um and i don't know i mean even man even with this powermatic i have the Laguna has it. Powermatic has it. My 14-inch Powermatic did not have it. But the Laguna and the, the bigger Powermatic have two ports on them. Okay. So there's one up by the bearings, one on the bottom for the, the, the lower wheel. Yeah. Um, in the shop, we have it connected with a Y. I have it connected with a Y here as well. And it pulls a lot of air, but you still get the dust coming from the top. So yeah. I just... I don't know. Maybe with the 36 inch, you won't. Maybe it all is going to go in the bottom of the case. I don't know. Yeah. So. I don't know. But it makes me happy being able to plane my material here. Not through my little freaking rigid lunchbox (laughs) planer that I have. (laughs) Not that it's a bad planer. It's just there's a lot of different even. I mean, this is a five-horse American-made motor. I I can take more off on this planer, and I did this morning, than I would do through our newer Laguna. It just isn't as nice of a motor. It's a little bit... I think that Laguna is maybe a three-horse in the shop. Um, Could be. But this one does not bog down at all. Yeah. And I don't know if that has to do with the three-phase or not. Could um, be. Yeah. So. All right. There you go. I think that wraps it up for another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, or informed rebuttals to any of the nonsense that we talk about here based on our very limited experience, you can send that as an email to woodsmith at woodsmith.com or even more fun, add to the conversation and our YouTube channel. Uh, special shout out to Epilogue Laser and their cool set of tools that allow you to customize and make unique woodworking projects. You can check out all that they have at epiloguelaser.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. <laughs>